Well, Applewood family, it is fun to be home. It's especially fun to be able to understand what people are saying, (laughs) to read signs, not to be sweating every moment of every day. Oh my gosh. Well, I, uh, I had this plan before I left, and so I'm, I'm continuing with this plan. I thought, well, it'll be great to show folks a few pictures. This is unrehearsed. This is just the best that I can do at this point in time. My body is still 15 hours ahead somewhere in the future, and I'm, wake, and I'm waking up at 2 a.m. in the morning. What is up with that? You just you lay there. It's like, wow, I'm awake. So I'm going to be ready for a nap soon. But I thought I'd show you a few pictures, give you a little flavor of Cambodia and just a little bit of my life the last couple of weeks, share a little bit from the scripture, and most importantly, gather together at the communion table this morning. Cambodia, a fascinating place, uh, full of lots of different kinds of people, uh, primarily a Buddhist country, 2% Christian. So there are Buddhist temples, there are shrines, literally everywhere you go. Rachel, next picture. We'll just click through these quickly. You can see this is um, near where it's called the, uh, the, the Temple Palace or Temple Courtyard. King's Palace is behind that. Uh, it is a high and holy worship place in Phnom Penh, capital city of Cambodia. I was in Phnom Penh for the first three, I don't know how long I was there, three or four days. That was a real good opportunity for me to uh, just sort of get caught up a little bit with uh, my time schedule, to learn a little bit more about the culture, to meet some people, learn more about ministries. Next picture, just again, more of uh, just Buddhist and Hindu influence, but primarily Buddhist throughout the country. Next picture. And the next picture. Yeah, very ornate. Interesting culture in that it's a country where there are obviously great pockets of wealth and, and yet just enormous, enormous poverty all through the country. Um, those of you who like orchids, you have seen nothing <laughs> until you have gone there. You know, I piddle around with this stupid little orchid at my house. You know, I, I talk to it and I trim it and I water it and, and about the time I go to throw it out, it sprouts little flowers for me, but... The orchids are everywhere. This was, uh, again, part of that, that temple shrine place that I showed you. I had to take this and bring it home to you because that is bamboo scaffolding. Now, I'd like you to see the sign that is right at the base of it. Can we have the next picture, Rachel? I don't know if you can read that from where you are. It says, safety first. <laughs> yes, safety is a priority as we climb all over bamboo scaffolding held together by ropes. Next picture. Uh, this is just a typical roadside scene, markets everywhere, uh, all kinds of, of different uh, food. Next picture. This is, I can't remember the name of the main river that flows through Phnom Penh, but it, uh, it flows into uh, the Mekong River, which most of us are familiar with because we know that that's in Vietnam. Um, the children are bathing in water, that we more than likely wouldn't let our kids get near. Uh, the, just the, the, the trash, uh, it's, it's an amazing sight. But, but kids are kids. I thought, kids are kids. They're mindless of the diseases that are floating around in this water, and they're having a great time, and it's a hot day, and 
I was tempted to join them for maybe a second or two. All right, next picture. Uh, just more of the same. You can see great contrast here of the wealth. There's, there's enormous development going on in uh, Phnom Penh. A lot of foreign investments that are coming in. The Chinese are investing hugely in Cambodia right now. Uh, a lot of natural resources in Cambodia that, that are not capped for the country's benefit, but are capped for the benefit of many who are outside of the country. Next picture. Um, roads like you've never seen in your life. You know, I, I, I grew up, you know, for, spent many years near, near Boston thinking that those drivers were terrible. And then, you know, I've been to a couple of African countries. These folks take the cake. Uh, there is just no describing what happens on the roadways. Uh, spent a lot of time in tuk-tuks. You can see the back of one up there. It's, a, it's just kind of an open-air wagon that's pulled by scooters. It's just kind of this amoeba that moves down the roads. There are traffic lights that nobody pays attention to. There are stop signs that I think that are just there for decoration. Um, and the remarkable thing is I saw no accidents. Safety first. Safety first. <laughs> it's just an unbelievable roadside experience. Extravaganza. Next picture. Next picture. Just giving you flavor. Okay. Shifted gears from, you know, seeing just some of the, uh, the, the city to more serious stuff. This is what is called Tool Slang. It was a high school in 1975. Ironically, it was April 17th when Khmer Rouge took over. 1975. It was one month before I graduated from high school. And this was a high school. They took it over. They killed many of the students. And the irony of that just struck me. On the other side of the world, I was 18 years old, about to begin my life uh, living carefree, not having a clue what was happening on the other side of the world as the Khmer Rouge began to wreak havoc on their own people in their own country. Um, great place of suffering. The uh, high school was turned into sort of a torture interrogation center. And those who didn't survive that were carted off in just thousands and thousands to uh, the killing fields of Cambodia. Next picture, pictures of all of those who were slaughtered in the killing fields. Uh, Estimates of upwards of 2 million people. Some experts say that Pol Pot single-handedly wiped out one quarter of the the population of his own country. Next picture. Classrooms that were turned into stalls. These are, these are stalls that, that are probably about four feet wide and maybe six and a half to seven feet long where, where four and five prisoners were chained together. Next picture. Uh, this is on the site of one of the killing fields. It's, uh, it's an enormous memorial. That building is filled with skulls of individuals. Next picture, who who were found in the killing fields right nearby. They estimate that there are, still of, there are hundreds of killing fields that have yet to be found in Cambodia. Next picture. Yeah, it's a gruesome sight. And there are, there are 13 levels. That, that building is probably a, a good 40, 40 to 50 feet tall, uh, filled with bones and skulls of people, uh, who, victims who were found. Uh, they're constantly being found. Next picture. The Cambodian people are committed to not forgetting what happened 
in their country's history. Next picture. Uh, this is one of the killing field areas. Uh, there, are, there are huge craters that were dug out where bodies were, were just were dumped, and, and people, some were buried alive, others were murdered right there on the spot. Um, they continue to find articles of clothing, next picture, and bone fragments, because during the rainy season, there's just torrential downpours, and, and soil washes away, and, and more bones and, and clothing fragments uh, are found. Next picture. Uh, this was a tree that, uh, it, it's just gruesome. Uh, the, the stories that you hear, um, they, would, they would play uh, loud Cambodian music so that, so that people in the surrounding community didn't necessarily know what was going on. The music was played loudly to drown out the moaning of, of the dying people in the killing fields. Um, the story is told that that there were, there were thousands of, of babies and infants um, whose, whose heads were, were smashed against this tree. And the general of the Khmer Rouge, when he was convicted of war crimes uh, and before he was taken away, was forced to visit this particular site. And the story is told that when he, when he heard what had happened to thousands of babies, he, um, he fell on his face and, and wept at the base of this tree is the story that they tell. Next picture. Oh, on a brighter note, moved from the killing fields to one of uh, Transform Asia's ministries. That's the, the ministry that, that I was under and working with over there. This is the Children's Learning Center. Next picture. And this place is just full of kids that I wanted to bring home. I was glad my wife wasn't there. They would have probably come home. Or we'd have gone to jail trying. These are children who live at the dump in Phnom Penh. And uh, they have the opportunity to come here every day. Every day they arrive stinking and dirty from the dump. They take showers, so you have all these cute little naked bodies just running everywhere, getting dried off. And then they put on their uniforms, which are these colored little shorts and T-shirts, and their clothes are washed. And so then at the end of the day, their little uniforms come off. They put on their clean clothes, which probably don't stay clean that long but they, they get one or two good meals while they are there during the day. Um, and it is, it is just a fabulous ministry. The volunteers that serve there uh, help the children learn just some of the basics of, of the English language. Amazing ministry. Precious children. Getting, getting to be children at one point in their life. Uh, sometimes the, uh, the numbers vary. The kids don't all come on the same days because mom and dad will, will hold them back uh, because they need their help. They, they make their, their, their livelihood from, from scavenging in the dumps. Lunch tables set out. Okay. Um, I just had to take a picture of this sign. It's on the way to, from Phnom Penh, we went directly south to the town of Kep, which is on, in South Cambodia. It's on the South China Sea. And that's where we spent four or five days together as pastors. It's kind of like a retreat center for them. This is a sign that once pointed out the most beautiful university in Cambodia. Uh, that was destroyed by the Khmer Rouge. And Seton Lee, who's the director of Transformation, said, ironically, that's the only thing that remains of the university. We stopped at the, uh, the dormitory, which is where the girls live that many of you brought things for. Oh, so much fun. Uh, they are just, they are just cute. It, it's, it's difficult to tell, and, and, and please understand, I, I heard this from those who know. It's difficult to tell how old a Cambodian woman is. They're all very tiny, petite little things. 
And, and it's, you don't know whether she really is 16 or she might be mid-20s, she might be late-20s, and be a mom of several children. Uh, these girls that live at this dorm come from faraway places to a local high school that's in the area. Uh, their parents work hard to, to come up with the money to afford to send them. And this dormitory is taken care of by one of the Cambodian pastors and his wife. They've sort of become dorm parents. And they parent these children for the five days of the week that they're there. And what it has done is it has created much more of a safe environment for these girls. One of the things that happens is that, that girls are trafficked. Uh, girls are, are victims of violent crimes in Cambodia. And, and it happens to high school girls who have to travel long distances through rural places to get to their school. So this is right next door to a big high school or within a few blocks. They live there and they go to school. Next picture. Precious kids. Couldn't understand a word any of them said. <laughs> Desperately wished that I could. Next picture. That's the inside of their dorm. 18 girls live there. Uh, and they are ages 14 to 18. And it is just this delightful, bright, pink room with white trim. And uh, you can just tell that they are all so proud of their room. Next picture. Next. That gives you an idea of what many of them live in when they're not at the school. Typical uh, Cambodian home, rural area. And here they're uh, beginning to put on some of the things that you sent. Headbands and... uh, wristbands and just all kinds of fun things. So cute. There's, I have a video somewhere that I need to find. Maybe I can show that to you next Sunday. It is, it is them just uh, trying on their different things, and at the end, they, they thank you as a church. It's really sweet. Here's the South China Sea. We're in the town of Kep. Uh, this is where the pastors and I gathered together, um, kind of a retreat-like center for them. Um, next picture. Pretty place. Did I mention it's hot and humid here? Oh, man. Okay, next picture. Just the sign of the place where we are staying. A lot of, lot of fishermen. Interesting place on the docks. You know, there are food places and market that just come right up next to where the fishermen come in and, you know, and unload their catches, and there are merchants there that are buying from them, and it's, it's very busy when the boats come in. Fascinating place. Here's one meal. Lots of squid. Have you ever had squid? It's really quite good. With, with rice. Had lots of rice while I was in Cambodia. They eat lots of rice, those folks. And, uh, you know, the fish come with the heads on. And here are some of my pastor friends. Now, we've, I was in this, this ginormous room that they put me in that had, like, two bedrooms and three beds. And that also doubled as the conference room. So... So we, uh, we sat together in one of my bedrooms for five days and <laughs> did a lot of teaching and, and uh, interacting together. Precious, precious brothers. I, I was so blessed to spend time with them. I would go back and do it in a heartbeat. Their passion for Jesus. There's lunch in the middle of one of our sessions eating lunch at uh, gazebo outside. What was really special is for them to be near the sea because none of them have churches. Their churches vary in size from, oh gosh, 15 to 20 people. Um, one pastor at a church that was closer to 60 people. Um, but they are spread all over Cambodia. 
And they came from some pretty good distances to be a part of this. None of them lived near the sea, so it was fun for them uh, to, uh, to get to eat seafood. And here, they are opening the tablets that so many of you contributed to. It was so much fun. Oh, I wish you could have been there and shared in that. And the two comments that were so amazing is, is the one pastor who, who, who spoke for all of the pastors said, be sure that you tell your people how thankful we are for these. And one pastor said, this is the nicest gift I've ever received in my life. And then another one said later on in the week, he said, I never expected that I would receive anything like this in my life. And bef- I mean, before two days had gone by, there, because there was internet there, so they were able to access the internet. They had downloaded a, a Cambodian study Bible. They had downloaded a number of resources, uh, and they were using them for, for the rest of the week. You know, we'd be looking at passages and doing studies together, and, and they're, they're working on their, on their pads. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. Next picture. Just had to get a shot of the big kid on the bed there. They are so much fun. They are just sweet, sweet men who I, I just love dearly. There was a oneness in Christ, and I know that I asked many of you to pray for that, and God really did answer that prayer. There was, there was such a connection and, and a oneness and a time of sharing together. So there's just a little glimpse of Cambodia. Um, lots of stories, and there are more pictures, and uh, I am happy to, to share with any of you who, who want to, to know more. So I trust that your journey in this Lenten season has been fruitful. Uh, it is such an important season in our lives. And I know I have said that. And I know when I say that, it probably sounds like I think it might be more important than, than the other seasons in the church calendar, the Easter season, the Pentecost season, and Advent season. They're all wonderful. And yet there is something that's so special about the Lenten season because of its, its particular focus upon the suffering of Jesus and his, his journey to the cross. I was reminded in my time with these Cambodian brothers just how important Jesus is. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. We all know, right, for sure how important Jesus is. Uh, but yet there, there, is, there is something about these, these men who, who seem to have so little. Jesus is not just important to them for eternity. Jesus is, he's their everything in the here and now. It, it, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. And I, I don't mean to, to communicate that, that they live perfect lives or anything like that. They, they struggle with so many of the same things that we do. But, but somehow for them, their passion for Jesus is, is deeply profound. I don't know if it's, maybe it's less distractions. They have so little by the world's standards, yet they, they seem to have so, so much. I don't know if that even makes sense. But their their passion for Jesus is pretty straightforward. We talked about sacrifice and serving and giving of ourselves, whatever Jesus wants. He calls them to follow, and, and they follow. He calls them to witness, and, and they witness to, to give, and they give out of their, their poverty. The spiritual battle is so clear to them. Seton, the director of Transformasia, shared with them um, that I've been battling with cancer over the last couple of years, and and they wanted to pray for me. Oh, my. 
I've never been prayed for like that. I, it's, I, I didn't understand a word of it, but somehow I knew what they were saying. It was spiritual warfare. They laid hands on me, and oh my gosh, it was so cool. I can't wait to go to the doctor. <laughs> Get my next blood test. Because if it's a zero, I'm just going to go, nah, 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 nah. Man, it's, it's like every season is Lent for these men. They are passionate about following Jesus, and they are, they are just out there against the enemy of God, our, our enemy as well. So when I left for Cambodia, I had this, this thought, it seemed like a leading from the Lord, that, that we would spend the, the remaining three Sundays that, that I would have with you leading up to Palm Sunday uh, looking at Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 as he resisted the devil in the wilderness. And my time spent there with them was just confirmation of that. I, I, I've come home knowing that that's, that's what we need to do together for these, these next three Sundays. And so this morning I want, to, I want us to read from Matthew 4. It's the account of the enemy's temptations of Jesus while he was in the wilderness. Familiar text for us. This will be our primary text for the next three Sundays. Uh, it's such a good Lenten text. Matthew tells us that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And, and in the church tradition, most people feel that that's where the 40 days of Lent uh, gets, gets its reason or its number from the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. So, before we read our text together, I just want to give you the immediate context. According to Matthew, um, I want to read from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist has been baptizing in the Jordan River, and we hear him speak these words. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, landing on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so our text follows immediately after what you've just heard. Let's stand and read together from Matthew 4. Together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Be seated. Familiar story for us, right? We've, we've heard it. But it's, it's precisely because it's familiar, and, and you know my phobia of things that are too familiar in the spiritual realm, precisely because we know it so well that I want to caution you against what I believe is a common misunderstanding that, that some make when they, when they read this. Because Matthew tells us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter came to him. We don't want to think that this is the only time that the enemy showed up. It was certainly a time of vulnerability. Physically, he was hungry, no food for 40 days. The enemy saw it as, as an opportunity, but, but there is nothing in the text, nor is there anything in all of the Gospels that should give us the impression that this was the only time To think that this was once and done, I think, undermines the very important nature of Jesus' suffering throughout his life. If anything, if I can say it this way, I think we ought to see it as an opening of the gates of hell, so to speak. Because because God, we just heard the words of the Father in Matthew 3, he's just announced his pleasure and his great love for his son. John writes in the first of his three little letters at the end of the New Testament that the reason that the Son of God appeared, the reason that Jesus came in the flesh to the earth was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus came. Destroy the devil's work. And the enemy, he knew who this man in the wilderness was. No question. And I think the assault began in earnest when Jesus was in the wilderness, but I think it was an ongoing battle. To think that it only happened once, it just doesn't make sense to me, given the mission of Jesus. And I believe that the temptations to defy his father came often. Repeatedly. And just because the enemy leaves when Jesus orders him to leave doesn't mean that he never returned. I heard someone say that one time, years ago. Someone said, you know, the way to get the devil to to leave you alone 
is to tell him to leave like Jesus did, and he cannot come back. Well, I don't think that's right. I certainly don't think that's what Matthew intends for us in this story. It is a battle that we face on a regular basis. It was a battle that Jesus, the eternal son, faced, I think, all through his life and especially intense in those ministry years. I think there are, are some truths to be taken from this account that, that can inform our understanding of, of temptation and, and how we ought to think of it in our, in our lives. And so I want to offer just a, a couple of them this morning that I, I'm kind of looking at them as sort of building block, sort of foundational truths, if you will, that will, will kind of guide our thinking over the course of the next three Sundays as we, we look more closely at each of the, the temptations. And, and I think it, it does a nice job of, of leading us to the communion table uh, this morning. So the first one, the first foundational truth that I'm calling them, uh, it's, uh, it's the very first sentence of our text. 16 words that need to catch our attention. We read these together. Let's put them back up here. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So your question is, why do you think the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? What I was really thinking was, what the heck was that all about? But that didn't sound very spiritual, so I didn't put that one down. Why do you think the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Ask your neighbor what they think. That's what Matthew tells us. All right, what do you think? Can we talk about it for a little bit? Looks like there's some good conversation going on. What do you think this was about? Why, why did the Spirit lead Jesus it's directly, it seems, immediately into the wilderness to be tested by the devil? Ah, okay. Opportunity to inform the devil, Satan, who was really in charge of things. Okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So, so there was a lesson in that for him. Okay. To his... Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're kind of taking us in the direction of the humanity of Jesus. A testing of the humanity, perhaps. Yeah, I like that. Physical desires, possessions, pride. Yeah. It was not the devil's idea. Say more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little kind of what Dixie said, there's, there's, there's something there to, to prove, to demonstrate. Ellen referred to that as well. Anything else? Good stuff. Yes. Okay. Same spirit that led Jesus is the spirit that lives in his people. Good, good. I like that. Lee, you already said something once. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In his humanity, yes, I do, I do. Let's, let's, let's talk about that for just a little bit. Remember, this was the first time, these words don't do it justice, so just hang in there with me. 
First time that God was born into and lived in a human body. He'd never done this before, as far as we know, right? The mystery of the God-man. And and though, though Jesus was not born with a sin nature, Jesus and his 100% human heart lived in our fallen world. And I think he could have given in to sin. Now, let me be quick to say that there is a long-standing debate in the theological world regarding this. Could he have sinned or could he not have, or, or was it impossible for him to sin? And the, the mix of wills, you know, God's will, human will, um, most theologians tend to kind of fall on the side of, well, you know, the, the will of God always trumps the will of humanity. But at the same time, he, he was 100% human, frankly, and I'm not the only heretic who believes this, I think he could have sinned. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet he did not sin. He doesn't tell us, yet he could not sin. He says, but he did not sin, which I think is the greatest reason that Jesus is such an encouragement to us in our humanity. He knows our temptations. He doesn't just know about our temptations. He knows our temptations. I think he knows the feelings and the emotional wrestling of those temptations. He knows how the enemy uses the test of our heart to to pull us in a direction that does not honor God. Okay, so I mentioned two sort of building block truths, if you will. Here's number one. God is always near us in times of temptation. He's always near us in times of temptation because I believe he intends for the circumstances to be a test of our heart's love. Who or what will our heart love the most? Will we give ourselves to those things that make us feel better? That satisfy our longings? That, that meet what we think are our needs? Because that's what temptation will lead us to do. It calls us to make life about us. Will we give in? Will we love God more than ourselves? God tests our hearts to see if we believe that he is enough no matter what the circumstances are of our lives. The temptation plants the seed of doubt in our minds that God 
doesn't mean for us to live this way. That surely God may have forgotten about you here in this situation. That God doesn't understand how you feel here. It could be that he's failed you at this moment. Or we'll change the language a little bit and say, you know, God loves you and doesn't intend for you to live this way. My Cambodian brothers would beg to differ. We have to remember that the temptation is not a sin. It is temptation. Profound, don't you think? Temptation is just temptation. It's giving in to the temptation that is the sin. And sometimes the object of temptation or the circumstances in which we find ourselves tempted are are not overtly evil. In fact, they look downright attractive. If you know the name J.C. Ryle, 1900 Anglican bishop in Liverpool, England, he writes this. He says, we are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying something like, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. (laughs) Oh no, says Ryle. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like Joab with outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it got her kicked out of the garden. Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at first beginnings. So, says Ryle, let us then watch and pray, lest we fall into temptation. So our first building block truth is to remember that God is always near us in times of temptation because God is at work through the circumstances that we are confronting in those moments. And I think they are coming as a test of what our heart is going to love. A part of the suffering of Jesus was to test his human heart. Is he going to pass the test? He did. And the same is true for us. Thankfully, because he passed the test, he then is both our redeemer and our example. He became the perfect sacrifice for sin. And in becoming that perfect sacrifice, he conquered sin for us so that we are no longer slaves to sin. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 8. He says, yeah, we've got an obligation, but it's a new one. We have an obligation to live godly lives and we have been set free from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. Where's Zach when we need him? He'd be shouting amen from the rooftops back there. We don't have to sin. We don't have to give into temptation. Second building block. Temptation always presents itself, always calls to us through one of the three areas of life or channels that are 
are common to our lives, experiences that are common to our lives, physical needs and desires, possessions and, and, and power. There's some, maybe some psychological needs that are kind of wrapped up in that. And thirdly, through pride, human pride. Turn these stones into bread, says the enemy. You're the son of God. 40 days without food, Jesus was hungry. That was a legit physical need. But in his heart, Jesus knew that the Father had called him there for a greater reason. Jesus ate food. He ate bread. But somehow in that moment, demonstration of his power to do something that the enemy tempted him to was on a fence to a commitment that he had with his father. Jump off the temple. God will take care of you. Now there's a way to impress people with your power and your abilities. And that's exactly what they were looking for in a Messiah. It made perfect sense. Jump off the temple. Reach the ground unscathed, uninjured. People will be so impressed It could accomplish much. Jesus said, no. Worship me, and I will give you all that you see. Gosh, what a challenge this must have been to to the godly creator that was Jesus. If anybody has the right to be prideful, it's God. And I can imagine Jesus standing there thinking, really? I created all of this? And you're offering it to me? Really? It just If anybody had reason to boast in what was his, it was Jesus. But again, the plan of the Father was that the king of creation would suffer at the hands of sinful people. Sinful people whom God loved. Jesus said, away from me, Satan. The worship of his heart would not be focused towards himself. It would be focused towards his father. I love what Helmut Thielich, he's a German theologian, again, 19th century, writes about Jesus' response here. He says this, He says, Jesus rose up from the place where the kingdoms of the world shimmered before him, where crowns flashed and banners rustled and hosts of enthusiastic people were ready to acclaim him. And instead, he quietly walked the way of poverty and suffering to the cross. And that, my friends, is what we want to give ourselves to these next three Sundays, looking at at each of the temptations and trying to understand how it is that that those become temptations in our lives. What's going on when they call to us? Why and, and how they call to us? By the power of the Spirit of God who led Jesus and empowered Jesus in the wilderness who lives in us, his people. May we 
learn how to respond like Jesus to those temptations. How does that sound? That's where we're going. Can you live with this? I mean, if you say no, I don't know what I'll do. But before you have a chance to say no, we're going to talk about communion. And we're going to celebrate communion.